that they bought into so much false belief and and now they've got like this new set of concepts or 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 a new framework that changes the definitions of words that they had previously taken for granted now they've got the correct definitions now they've got the correct worldview and 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 they're really all they need to do is refine it um is is you're saying at this point Zizek says no it doesn't matter if you think you're red pilled or woke the 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 more the more you think that you are waking up the more in the dream you actually are is that um, no no okay, the, the point is the they live glasses when you put them on you're seeing the real of ideology you're actually getting tapped in to all the unconscious dynamics that are going on that are organizing your conscious socio symbolic reality and so for him like he does think we can actually we can wake up so to speak whether you want to call it woke or red pill that doesn't really mad i mean okay it's funny we use that because when he talks about the matrix his famous line is that i want a third pill right and so the third pill as as far as the matrix examples go okay so we all know red pill is you just wake up into the real reality opposed to living your life with the blue pr- blue pill in the illusion, right? Zizek wants a third pill, let's call it a green pill, because what he wants is to be able to see the reality of the illusion. And what he means is like, that's ideology. Like ideology is illusory, but it it also is reality. Like it configures our whole world. And so what he wants to be able to perceive is the illusionary dimension that makes our reality reality. So you're not just seeing the illusion. You're actually realizing the illusion structures are reality, but you're trying to see how, how you, so the question is, is how does it structure our reality? Is what is, that's what he says. That's why he wants well, to here's the point, right? Like, so fantasy, right? Like if we have certain fantasies that tell us like, this is how you satisfy the other, or this is how you, and like, this is how you satisfy your society or right. Like, this is what you got to be. The whole point is, that's an illusion. It's not guaranteed to satisfy anything. And yet it completely structures our, our world, like those ideological fantasies. And so the point is just like the generation of sublime objects, right? Like Jewish people don't have any special relationship to Jouissance. That's an illusion, but look how much reality that illusion had, which is to say, look how much causal impact that illusion had on it during world war two because of that illusion or or for instance let's just go with something a little more modern there's an entire uh a very 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 small percentage of this country is is really radically radically to the point of wanting civil war like attached to the democratic party and uh it hated uh bernie and did everything it could to undermine him. And that was so obvious that a lot of people dropped out of politics right then in 2016. Like I saw it happen. I saw a lot of people also just be like, oh, we did, we can't even forgive Bernie for getting behind Hillary, right? There's a lot of people who are like, well, he's just, a, you know, he's just actually bringing people into the thing. Okay, the party, how does it handle the fact that 
Hillary loses to Trump? Well, you blame. We, surprise, surprise. We weren't aware. America's just that racist. And also, Putin wants to ruin our enjoyment. And so, uh, or, or maybe I shouldn't even say that but because that's, that's technical jargon. But I'll just say, yeah, P Putin wants to destroy us. And I mean, I was saying in 2016, they would rather go to war with someone who has nukes than accept responsibility for choosing one of the most uh, corrupt and unlovable candidates in human history. That They were that cocksure of themselves. They really didn't care about losing, that they would rather blame Putin. And then, you know, the 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 rhetoric, like Hillary said that like he's like a, a vile piece of like she said something really crazy like I, I, the adjectives she used I, ca I can't even say, recall exactly what they are I don't want to get it wrong but this was she's she's said crazy stuff in the past about him as 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 have a lot of Democrats recently because of RussiaGate and so it's like it's like okay so even if everything they believed about RussiaGate is true and a lot of it's not um, it's still one of those things where it's like yeah but there were other factors how has this one been turned into such a scapegoat. No, I mean, I think it's it's abundantly clear that the Democratic Party is pathologically incapable of facing up to its own intrinsic problems. Yeah. And so and so I mean, that is the ideological distortion. And Let me the reason. So the, the, the only reason I brought in Putin was because I just every time we talk about Jews to me, it's so fucking remote because I don't know anybody who has ever espoused anti-Semitism, like actual anti-Semitism. I don't even see it online because I just avoid wherever you go to see it. And so it's like, it's actually very remote for me. But, but what, you know, so I just it's went also Maybe the purest form of ideological scapegoating that ever occurred. Well, because it seems so crazy to us because it's so remote, but it's like, yeah, to think, because yeah, you, you kind of did elaborate. You said, just imagine, you know, it clearly mobilized a lot of people. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to be fair though, fascists will always just take whatever's popular in the moment. And these are popular currents. The fact is, is the overwhelming majority, majority of Germans probably didn't think the Jews are actually all these things, but they're also like, well, as long as they're not taking me off, I'm okay with it. You know, the camps were mysterious. A lot of people didn't know about the, you know, oh, they're just being relocated. This is why. You know, the, the language of, of relocating people is so scary uh, is because at the point that the state starts relocating people, like, take you know, are taking them out of their homes and they're, are, they're carting them off, like, the state's usually going to say and even show pictures of, like, look, no, this is where they're going. They're okay. You know, we'll have, we'll hear testimonies about how wherever they went is all right. No, the, the, the state will do whatever it can to fucking get rid of uh, anything that's really like a burden or expensive or in the way, you know, and so you had like actual ideologues who just hated Jews who really wanted to, you know, I, but, but what I'm saying is that you had a lot of people who were like, oh, you know, Jews, bad. But but here's the thing. Here's oh, the they're being taken away. I guess I don't really care that much because I'd rather just look out for me and my own. But what I'm saying no. is a lot of people didn't believe it. Right, but what, like, two things. One, because let me let me finish that with the Trotskyist thing. So what a, what a Marxist will say, or at least Trotskyists in my life would say about this, is just that the bourgeoisie will always work with the fascists at the point that they have lost control and they're not able to do things in a liberal order. 
So they'll always work with the fascists rather than the communists, right? And so what, what, what ends up happening is you have a, a professional managerial class who opportunistically takes the side of the despot who's willing to use uh, this, this, uh, this scapegoat that's so horrendous um, that it's, it's, it's a lesser evil for them in order to maintain their status quo or get it back at that point. And so they go, okay, I'm going to go along with it. But, you know, and what that means is you have a, an intelligentsia who is opportunistic and in bad faith about the whole thing. They'll, they'll keep talking it. They'll, they'll, they'll use the, they'll say the things that one is supposed to say. And we see that today with today's professional managerial class. There's a whole discourse that it is supposed to espouse. Point being, the, the, the lower class people, the uneducated people, the easily manipulated people, the people who are going along with it, the people who have been being radicalized and turned reactionary, uh, oh, they believe it. They absolutely believe it. And at that point, it is powerful and it, it, it is motivating them. So I just had to clarify because I didn't want to leave that hanging where, I, where, I, where, where it was at. All right. Well, two clarifications on my end, too. So one, Zizek's whole theory of belief or ideological belief is that no one actually has to have a first person belief for the belief and the ideology to function. Right. We go along with things, not because we feel like we have a first person belief in it, but because we think everybody else around us has a first person belief in it. So you can have a belief that functions, even if nobody actually has a first person belief in it, simply because they believe others believe. Exactly. So, you know, we talk about transference is the subject supposed to know. We can easily talk about belief as the subject supposed to believe. Like, but there is, I mean, it's almost irrelevant whether or not there is a first person belief in somebody. The point is, is there a belief that there's a first person belief in the other? And that certainly was the case in Nazi Germany. Second, Zizek says, look, like when it comes to ideological fantasy, like the frame of fantasy where you're, you're looking at people through this phantasmatic lens it's not that you have to view them as like actual monsters. All the fantasy has to do is raise your suspicion, suspicion about them. And he goes out of his way to talk about it like that, where that's why, like when I heard Trump start doing these like suggestions or whatever he was doing, like it always raises my, uh, raises an alarm in me because whenever some political figure is trying to raise your suspicion about a certain group. Like that's all it takes is for you to suspect there might be something with them going on that's wrong or whatever. And that lens of suspicion, it's not the lens of, oh, they're a monster or they're inhuman or whatever. It can go there through suspicion, but all it has, all it takes for somebody to go along with it is suspicion. So, so in a sense, the, the most powerful factor is not the person who is just like, Jews have literally ruined the world. I fucking hate them. It's the person who's like, I mean, maybe. Honestly, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's fair. And so, and it, so okay, Zizek yeah. talks about these two procedures of ideology. So this is a great quote. I was going to read it earlier and then whatever, sidetrack. But this is from Conversations with Zizek. And so... In Sublime, this, this book of interviews, it came 
I want to say anywhere like 10 years after Sublime Object. And so throughout that period, he had been refining what he thinks, how like the structure of ideology, what ideology does. So he's going to say like, oh, I have an issue with my old definition of ideology. So I'm going to read it, read that. But then in the next paragraph, he basically goes, yes, of course, what I just said works, but there's another side to it. So the point is, he maintains what he thinks ideology is as presented in the sublime object of ideology, but he has a kind of like amendment or a second aspect that he adds on to it. So he says, I am no longer satisfied with my old definition of ideology, where the point was that ideology is the illusion which fills in the gap of impossibility and inherent impossibility is transposed into an external obstacle. Now let's, okay. Yeah. So that that's really important. So what he's saying he's doing in sublime object is he's saying, look, there is like this, this point of antagonism, inconsistency, traumatic gap in a social order. Now in capitalism, we can say it's, the class struggle between proletariat and um, capitalist, right? Yeah. So that's the gap of impossibility he's talking about, right? So what the point is, there are structural deadlocks, structural conflicts, structural problems baked in to every society, especially capitalism, okay? So the point is, though, all right, these are intrinsic impossibilities, intrinsic contradictions, intrinsic antagonisms. We do not want people to focus on those because if we focus on those, solving them means drastically changing society itself. It yeah, no I wouldn't. Longer I, capitalist society. Right. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't have a job anymore. Right. Like it or I'm like that. Like uh, yeah. I'm not going to be any existing senator is not going to be a senator in that world. They're not going to be able. You know so. It's the it's the bipartisan agreement between the two parties, it, it, which is the unspoken things that they share. That if anybody starts shining any light on what they all share, they're going to freak out and do everything they can to stop that person, even if it requires killing them. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, I, what he's yeah. saying is that what ideology primarily does is it takes one of its structural contradictions baked into the society itself. And it transposes it onto an external obstacle. So the the issues leading up to Nazi Germany in Germany were all these structural issues, economic, political, etc. But that's a huge complicated web of structural dynamics. Things get much clearer if you exchange these intrinsic structural conflicts for an external object that you can go oh, it's just this thing over here that came along and fucked things up. If we get rid of this, things go back to smooth functionality. That's the ideology. Is that, oh, the problem is some foreign intruder, foreign invader, when in fact there's structural dynamics that have caused the problems to emerge. And so hopefully that clarifies that. So let me reread it. I am no longer satisfied, even though he... He sticks to it. He's just saying he's not satisfied with this being all ideology is. I am no longer satisfied with my old definition of ideology, where the point was that ideology is the illusion which fills in the gap of impossibility and inherent possibility is transposed into an external obstacle. 
and that therefore what needs to be done is to reassert the original impossibility. This is the ultimate result of a certain transcendentalist logic. You have an a priori void, an original impossibility, and the cheating of ideology is to translate this inherent impossibility into an external obstacle. The illusion is that by overcoming this obstacle, you get the real thing, all the real sublime enjoyment. I am also tempted to say that the ultimate ideological operation is the opposite one. That is the very elevation of something into impossibility as a means of postponing or avoiding encountering it. Now, so here's what he's saying. On the one hand, ideology takes some built-in impossibility, something the society just cannot do, cannot resolve, and then it displaces that onto some external thing, the Jews, the Muslims, the whoever you want to blame, a scapegoat, and say, okay, if we get rid of that, then this, this, in, this problem we're facing, this impossibility gets resolved. Okay, but then he comes along and sees also this other operation, which is I'm going to elevate something into impossibility as a means of postponing or avoiding encountering it. This is a another thing ideology does, which is to say it's kind of the promise of a better tomorrow. It's saying like, okay, there's something impossible in our society Here's why we can't achieve it right now, but, and, and it continues to be postponed and avoided, but we still seek to reach that thing eventually. And so then he goes on to clarify this a bit. Again, I am almost tempted to turn the standard formula around. Yes, on the one hand, ideology involves translating impossibility into a particular historical blockage thereby sustaining the dream of ultimate fulfillment, a co consummate encounter with the thing, jouissance. On the other hand, ideology also functions as a way of regulating a certain distance with such an encounter. That's what he's saying. Ideology tells you why you don't have the enjoyment you fantasize about. Like it justifies to you why you lack. And so... In, in capitalist society, there's all kinds of what, you know, people are struggling right now. Uh, people can't live the old standard of life that consumerism was based around, right? There's all this stuff going on. And so ideology will tell you why you're not getting the thing. And when it tells you why you're not getting the thing, it avoids, again, well, you're not getting the thing because of structural reasons. There's some sort of thing that's elevated to this position of impossibility and, and so the point is it keeps you desiring it keeps you invested in the ideological system because if we just push forward if we just get through whatever obstacle we have this system is going to give me the enjoyment that i believe it promises me so in a, and he, he clear he, he ends up by saying <clears throat> it ideology sustains at the level of fantasy precisely what it seeks to avoid at the level of actuality. It keeps us desiring. It keeps it, There's some lure out there that keeps us invested in the system that we don't actually have at the moment. It endeavors to convince us that the thing, jouissance, cannot be ever, cannot ever be encountered, that the real forever eludes our grasp. 
So ideology appears to involve both sus sus uh, sustenance and avoidance in regard to encountering the thing enjoyment. Sustenance. <clears throat> yeah, sustenance. So and enjoyment. In an attempt to bring in new people to the world of philosophy and theory while building on relationships already established, we are doing a countrywide tour of the United States this fall. What's up, guys? It's Anna Dave. Are we coming to a city or a town near you? Do you think there is a venue or audience in your local region that would be interested in a lecture or facilitated discussion about existentialism, critiques of therapism, PMC ideology, self-help, introduction to philosophy, or the time energy critique of any of those things. This speaking and discussion facilitation tour will include the Pacific Northwest in mid-August, the Kansas City, Missouri area late August or early September, Philadelphia at the beginning of October, and really we're gonna be all over the area there, hopefully, so get in contact with us if you think that we should come visit your state Phoenix, Arizona, mid-October, and SoCal, especially San Diego, late October. I say especially San Diego because we already have our guide for the San Diego region. What's the difference between a host, a guide, and a volunteer, you ask? Well, thanks for asking, actually. The volunteer role is for people who want to put up posters or in other ways promote the events that will be occurring in their town or city. Whereas the host might have a guest bedroom, guest house, or a place that we can park our van so that we can sleep in our van. We need to know if you would have like bathroom facilities or anything like that. And so the form on the website is where you can tell us what you have to offer. Guiding on the other hand though, people who love to guide take a lot of pride in their local knowledge. A good example of that would be Michael Downs when I visited him in Raytown, Missouri. And he took me into Kansas City and we had barbecue and he took me to the mall and to all these other landmark places from his life growing up there. Um, but a more recent example would be my friend Michael in Poland who took us around Katowice, Poland and basically gives a historical and sociological analysis of everything. And it was amazing. It was, it was one of the coolest things we've ever experienced. And it made us realize some people just want to provide the space and privacy, whereas other people want to take you out and show you around. And so if you're interested in being a volunteer, host, or guide, we have a special form for that. So please fill out your information and uh, get in contact with us as soon as possible so we can fit you into the schedule because we'll love to meet you, touch base with the local community. And if you don't think anyone else in your area is interested in the things that you're interested in, if you don't think anyone else is into this stuff, well, we might be able to surprise you. When I saw that poster, Bolgrillard in Boise fucking Idaho, are you kidding me? It was virtually an, an answer to an unspoken prayer, you know, really was. And I just couldn't believe that somebody was interested in the things that I was interested in that I had been interested in for years and had kind of given up on in, in futility. I'd labored in solitude for so long, 
I had no one to talk to about it, no one to bounce ideas off. This tour is going to bring together a lot of people who want to be based in text with the people they're in conversation with. And yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic year. The only other thing that I want to say is that Michael Downs' first book is going to be published by Theory Underground really soon here. I've got another book coming out really soon here. These books will be spread throughout the United States on this tour. So I'm hoping to be able to do some actual book launch events at various bookstores. Outside of that, I guess the last thing that I would say is that Michael Downs is gearing up to teach For They Know Not What They Do by Slavoj Žižek. We're putting out all these introduction videos and other interviews related to the topic of Hegel, Lacan, Žižek because we want to give people an accessible and sturdy basis in the discourse. The problem is, is that Michael Downs is very busy having to work at a wage slave job. And so if you want to help in freeing Mikey, make sure to go to his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the dangerous baby and make a donation. Thank you. I would be remiss to close this out without a quick shout out to our patrons and our anonymous donors. Thank you so much for the donations already. We've only been around for a month. We already got over $3,000 in donations. Um, and so thank you. And uh, stay tuned for the app, which is on its way. There will be a Fury Underground app. So the current setup is that it is a social media site built around courses where you can suppose that people who are involved in the discussions have a shared interest in the same or similar texts and where you can assume in a lot of the discussions that, yeah, people have read the stuff that you're reading, uh, that you're bringing into dialogue. And so, uh, for instance, the idea of the university by Carl Jaspers, dedicated forum. Slavoj Zizek's For They Don't Know What They Do, dedicated forum. And then as people take the course over the years, new people will be coming into that forum. And so if you get in there early, you'll be able to see how the conversation evolves. And as new people add into the conversation, it'll bring back memories and like things that you want to work through, questions that you had with the first time that you read the text. And so I'm really excited for this. The reason I've built this website is because I think that this is what's lacking in so many other spaces, is that ability to return, to be able to communicate after the fact and in a sustained way on a platform that's not attention grabby and annoying like discord and so stay tuned because there is an app on the way thank you to our donors if you want to donate go to theory-underground.com forward slash support thank you